Grave, Book One, The Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song, Lionheart, by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 12. Our Flag Was Still There James Madison's first year as president was a difficult one. The embargo of British goods, in retaliation for their aggression toward American ships, was not having the desired effect. In fact, it was the American economy that suffered the most. The British were still able to get goods from Canada. By 1812, Americans had had enough and decided they needed to invade Canada to prevent it from sending goods to Britain. Led by Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun, the Congress voted for war in June of 1812. The United States had trouble raising an army for the invasion of Canada, however, and by the end of 1812, the Americans had already surrendered Detroit, and the country was in more danger of being invaded than doing the invading. They were beginning to have some victories on the seas when the USS Constitution and other heavy frigates won a series of ship-to-ship contests with the British. The Royal Navy was too large and powerful, however, and blockaded the United States. Things deteriorated so badly for the Americans that Northern Federalists and Republicans joined together to vote against Madison in the 1812 election. He still won. But the shocking vote was a loud signal that they had no confidence in his war efforts. Even more frightening was that many in the New England states and New York were beginning to talk of seceding from the Union. Out west, American militia were under siege by England's Indian allies led by Chief Tecumseh, whose braves were known for the red war clubs they carried as the Red Sticks, or in French, Les Batons Rouges. A group of Creek Indians attacked Fort Mims in August of 1813, slaughtering 250 whites, including women and children. The children were grabbed by the legs and swung, their heads smashed against the stockading. The governors of Alabama and Mississippi did not have enough men to effectively fight the Red Sticks and sent requests to Tennessee for assistance. Not long after the American Revolution, young Andrew Jackson had left the Carolinas, moving west into the territories that eventually became Tennessee. In the capital of Nashville, Jackson had huge success as a lawyer and established a large farm known as Hermitage Plantation. Always a fighter, 
By 1801, Jackson had earned the rank of colonel in the Tennessee militia. As evidenced from his Revolutionary War days, Jackson was prideful, stubborn, and often quick to temper. He was also a natural-born leader who quickly earned the respect of his men. However, in the summer of 1813, two of those men were after each other, and Jackson was dragged into the middle of their feud. As tempers flared, Jackson and his friends Jesse and Tom Benton suddenly found themselves enemies. Feeling disrespected by Tom Benton, Jackson swore he would horsewhip the man. Jackson and Benton came face to face in a tavern a few days later, and both men went for their pistols. Jackson was quicker on the draw, and Benton began to back away. While Jackson was distracted, aiming his gun at Tom Benton, Tom's brother, Jesse, sneaked up on Jackson and shot him from behind, shattering his shoulder bone. As Jackson fell forward, he fired at Tom Benton, narrowly missing flesh, but tearing a hole through his sleeve. Benton drew his cane sword and charged Jackson as Jesse fired again, this time hitting Jackson in the left arm. Somehow, Jackson managed to fight both men off. Badly injured, Jackson was taken to the Nashville Inn, where he was met by the doctor, who proclaimed he would have to amputate Jackson's left arm. Jackson refused to allow the amputation, stating quite firmly that he would keep his arm. His arm survived, and though his loss of blood brought him near death, so did the rest of Andrew Jackson. He was, however, still in bed recovering when the pleas for help came from Alabama and Mississippi. Jackson was never one to miss a good fight, and placing his arm in a sling and gritting his teeth through the pain as he rode his horse led 2,000 Tennessee volunteers against the Creeks. Among the volunteers was a young man named Davy Crockett, who would one day become one of the most famous frontiersmen in the country. In March 1814, Jackson's volunteers met 4,000 Creeks at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. They killed 2,500 Indians, causing Davy Crockett to remark, We shot them down like dogs. A Creek woman guarded a house with a bow and arrow. She loosed the arrow, killing an officer. His men returned fire. Crockett estimated 20 or more bullets tore through her body. Then, as their lust for vengeance for the American women and children killed at Fort Mims set in, the militiamen burned the house down, killing everyone inside. Following the victory, the United States Secretary of War rewarded Jackson with a commission as a major general and placed him in command of the Southwestern Military District. That same month, Napoleon Bonaparte abdicated after Prussian, Austrian, and British armies crossed into France. Napoleon's defeat freed up British forces for the war in America. The British had a three-pronged attack strategy. They planned to conquer the American capital in Washington, bringing a quick end to the war. At the same time, they would invade from Canada, annexing parts of New England and New York to create a buffer zone between the United States and England's North American territories. Finally, they planned to attack New Orleans and take control of the Louisiana Territory, giving it back to the Spanish. With Ferdinand VII back on the throne, Spain would be a British ally. With Europe beginning to align with Britain against the United States, 
President Madison and his Secretary of State, James Monroe, softened their stance, hoping to achieve peace. In Ghent, Belgium, American diplomats, including Albert Gallatin, Henry Clay, and John Quincy Adams, son of former President John Adams, met with their British counterparts in an attempt to negotiate a peace. The British people were weary of war after fighting Napoleon for so long, and Lord Liverpool, the Prime Minister, had staked his entire government on achieving peace at Ghent. Thus, both sides were predisposed to end the war. But while the diplomats negotiated in Belgium, blood continued to be shed in America. The British were accustomed to fighting wars in Europe, where capturing a capital was important, and normally meant the end of the war. That was not the case for Americans. At the time, Washington City was really nothing more than a small southern town. Other than being the seat of government, it served no real economic or strategic value to the United States. Thus, it was sparsely defended, and as a result, most of the citizens evacuated the city as soon as they were able. Those early evacuees did not include the First Lady, however. Dolly Madison refused to leave the city without her husband, even once it became clear that the British would capture the city. Realizing the British were marching on the capital, President Madison had sent all the important papers out of the city. He then rode off to inspect and rally the troops defending the capital, leaving his wife behind in the president's mansion. Dolly waited at the mansion, her eye to a spyglass, scanning the distance, praying her husband would soon return. She knew the British intended to burn the mansion. Word had already reached her that the British rear admiral, Sir George Coburn, had proclaimed that the next time he went ashore, he planned to bow to Dolly Madison in her drawing room and then burn the house to the ground. Fearing for Dolly's safety, Charles Carroll, a friend of the Madisons, arrived from Georgetown to try and persuade her to leave. She reluctantly agreed, but insisted that he remove the front seats of his carriage so that they could take her piano with them. She also refused to evacuate without taking the grand portrait of George Washington, fearing the British would defile the painting. Discovering that the frame had been screwed to the wall, Dolly commanded her servants to break the frame and simply remove the canvas. Her butler, a Frenchman they nicknamed French John, climbed a ladder and cut the picture from the frame with his pocket knife. Then the party left, trying to get out of the city ahead of the American troops, already in retreat. The British marched triumphantly into Washington and began torching the city. Admiral Coburn entered the president's mansion, hoping to find the president and his wife. He had been boasting to the Americans that he intended to capture Jimmy Madison and send him back to England as a curiosity. Finding no one, he and the other officers sat down at the dining room table and began to drink all the alcohol in the house. When they had finished, he ordered the house burned to the ground. Providence did not smile on the British, however. One of the worst storms in the history of Washington blew through that evening, destroying several buildings and burying 30 British soldiers in the rubble while injuring many more. General Ross, commander of the British troops, was forced to abandon the city to move toward Baltimore, Maryland, without even a chance to bury their dead. Ross and Coburn had made their headquarters at the home of a doctor 
named William Beans, who had been most hospitable to them, even offering them tea. Dr. Beans claimed to be neutral about the war. He was a Federalist, and the Federalist Party had staunchly opposed the war, and the British consequently paid him for the supplies and horses he provided them. As the British left Washington, several British deserters remained behind and began pillaging local farms. A group of men, including Dr. Beans, took matters into their own hands to protect the farms and even captured a few redcoats, locking them up in the county jail. One escaped, however, and made it back to Ross, informing the general that Beans was among those who had captured him and his colleagues. Feeling betrayed by Beans, General Ross ordered the doctor to be arrested. Friends of Dr. Beans asked noted Georgetown attorney Francis Scott Key to intercede on the doctor's behalf before Beans was sent as a prisoner to Bermuda. Key was in the process of fleeing the area himself, having somehow managed to find two wagons that had not been commandeered by the army or used by others also trying to escape. His wife had already left and was staying at an inn some distance away. Key agreed to try and help the doctor and rode out to find President Madison. When Madison heard the news that Dr. Beans had been captured, he immediately dispatched John Skinner, the U.S. agent in charge of prisoner exchanges, to assist Key in securing the doctor's release. Having evacuated Washington, the British were on their way to Baltimore, Maryland, and Key and Skinner rushed to catch up with them. Baltimore had a much stouter defense than Washington, and the British fleet first came upon Fort McHenry, about two miles from the city. As the ships sat in anchor, out of range of the fort's guns, Key and Skinner rowed a boat out to the British flagship under a flag of truce. With letters in hand from British soldiers detailing the humane treatment Dr. Beans had provided them, Key boarded the ship to seek his friend. General Ross reluctantly agreed to release Dr. Beans, based on what he found to be Beans' admirable compassion and not from any opinion of his own merit. However, the general insisted that the men remain aboard the ship until after the assault on Baltimore had been completed. With General Ross leading the way, the British army landed some distance from Fort McHenry and marched toward the fort without resistance for about four miles until they reached what was known as North Point. There, they encountered approximately 3,000 American regulars and militia from the surrounding states. The British forces sent wave after wave, but the Americans stood fast. Despite the heavy losses, the British kept pushing nearer and nearer the American lines. One British officer recounted what happened as his men neared the front. They saw another officer sprinting toward them at full speed, his face filled with horror and dismay as he frantically called for a surgeon. The men recognized the officer as General Ross's aide-de-camp, and they knew then that something terrible had happened, and they all feared the worst. Their fears were confirmed when they saw General Ross's horse galloping past them without a rider, its saddle stained with blood. A few minutes later, they reached the general, lying by the side of the road in agonizing pain as he neared death. After General Ross died, the British troops fell back. The Americans attempted to cut off the British retreat, but the Redcoats were able to escape under the cover of night. The next day, the British fleet formed a semicircle in front of Fort McHenry and bombarded the fort 
from far enough away that the guns on the fort could not return fire. Since they could not meet the enemy's range, the soldiers in the fort simply hunkered down to outlast the barrage. Late that night, around midnight, 80 boats carrying 25 British apiece attempted to sail around the fort and move on toward the city. Navigating by the light of the artillery and rockets, the boats pushed into the cove to get behind McHenry. Hot shot rained down upon them from not only McHenry, but also the men from the city batteries in Fort Covington until the British retreated back out of reach of the American guns. Francis Scott Key watched the British barrage in Fort McHenry from the deck of the British ship, praying the colors would not be struck, thus signifying surrender. The battle raged all day and all night, and Key kept watching the flag. After the sun set, Key could observe colors by the illumination of rockets and shells bursting in the air above. The barrage finally ceased just before the sun rose. And as dawn broke over the water, Key thanked God that the American flag still flew over the fort. He quickly scribbled down some words of a poem describing the battle on the back of a letter. The poem, entitled The Star-Spangled Banner, would later become the national anthem of the United States of America. Due to the determined stance of the troops in Fort McHenry, the British failed to take Baltimore, thus ending that prong of their attack. But they had two other prongs to go. At the same time Ross was marching on Washington, another British force was marching south from Montreal, Canada, with the intention of seizing parts of New England and New York. The British were met by a force of militia from New York and Vermont, alongside United States regulars at the town of Plattsburgh, New York, on the banks of Lake Champlain. It was a very strategic point, with both the Americans and British General Prevost, realizing that if the Redcoats did not control the lake, they could not ensure supply lines from Canada. At nine in the morning of September 11, 1814, the day before the first assault on Fort McHenry was to begin, the British began their attack on Plattsburgh. The British Naval Squadron, under the command of Captain George Downey, sailed into Plattsburgh Bay, where American ships under the command of Master Commandant Thomas Macdonough, waited for them. General Prevost was supposed to attack the American land forces at the same time. Prevost delayed, however, and his army was an hour late in beginning the attack. The four American ships were anchored in the bay in a line. Macdonough was aboard the American flagship USS Saratoga. Smaller gunboats were positioned in between the larger ships. Downey commanded the British squadron from aboard the HMS Confiance, which dropped anchor just 500 yards from the Saratoga's starboard side and fired a broadside. The Saratoga returned fire, and Downey was killed when a cannonball knocked one of the Confiance's guns off of its carriage and slammed into the British captain. Nevertheless, the Confiance continued to fire, and though its power had lessened considerably, it was still able to silence the Saratoga's starboard guns. Meanwhile, the other British ships were not faring as well. Though the HMS Lennett was holding its own against the USS Eagle, the HMS Chubb had already surrendered. After being so badly damaged, it had run into the American line. Similarly, the HMS Finch had run aground upon Crab Island and was forced to surrender to a battery of General McComb's American militia. As for the British gunboats, 
the USS Ticonderoga was doing a marvelous job of keeping them away from the fight. Engaging the gunboats, however, made it impossible for the Ticonderoga to assist Macdonough and the Saratoga. As the HMS Lennett battled the Eagle, it shot out the anchor cable of the American ship, making it impossible for the Eagle to come around and return fire. The Eagle's captain then cut the other anchor, allowing the ship to drift astern of the Saratoga, where it could assist in fighting the Confiance. However, that also freed the Lennett to engage the Saratoga. Macdonough was in a pinch, as the Saratoga's port guns were facing away from the battle, and all of the starboard guns had been silenced. Keeping a cool head, Macdonough ordered the bow anchor be cut so that they could spin the ship by kedging. His men had dropped the small kedge anchors in the bay earlier that morning. To kedge the ship, the crew had to turn the capstan, which was connected to the anchor lines, thereby hauling in the kedge anchors and manually spinning the ship around. Thus, it was by brute strength that the Saratoga was turned to bring its port guns to bear on the Confiance. Macdonough fired a broadside at the Confiance, damaging the British flagship so badly that it could not return fire and was forced to surrender. The Saratoga then hauled in further on its kedge anchors, turning its guns on the Lennett and fired another broadside. The Lennett was so badly damaged it began to sink and its captain also surrendered. An hour after the naval battle began, General Prevost had finally begun the ground assault of the town of Plattsburgh. The Americans stood fast, preventing the British from forcing their way into the town. As his men faced a stubborn American army determined to prevent the fall of Plattsburgh, Prevost received word that the naval squadron had surrendered. He realized that without naval support, even if he took Plattsburgh, he would not be able to continue his campaign. Worried about fighting a winter campaign without secure supply lines on Lake Champlain, Prevost decided to begin marching back to Montreal that very night. Thus, the second prong of the British three-prong attack on the United States had been thwarted, just as the first prong had. There was still one more prong to go. The third and final British assault would come in New Orleans. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War, but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again, and now, back to Home of the Brave. Admiral Cochrane, who had commanded the British naval forces at the Battle of Baltimore and was now taking the fleet to New Orleans, estimated that they would only need 3,000 men to take the city. His superiors disagreed and tripled that number. 
taking over command of the British land forces from the now-deceased General Ross, was the Duke of Wellington's brother-in-law, Sir Edward Pakenham. After successfully defending Mobile, Alabama from a British assault, Andrew Jackson marched his men east to Pensacola, Florida, where they captured the town's fort from England's Spanish allies. In November of 1814, two months after the battles of Plattsburgh and Baltimore, Jackson received word of an impending British assault on New Orleans. He quickly marched his men back west to defend the city, arriving the next month. When Jackson arrived in New Orleans, he looked much older than his 47 years. In fact, he looked near death. He had become very sick before leaving Pensacola and had not yet recovered. The march to New Orleans had been a long and painful affair for him. Luckily for him, Pakenham delayed nervously in Jamaica. Jackson had no idea that he had arrived weeks before the British and assumed that he would see their sails any day. Thus, he and his men went to work immediately, with everyone in the city pitching in to prepare New Orleans' defenses. Jackson assembled an army of what historian Walter A. McDougall referred to as Kentucky Rifles, Creole Militia, fully 40% of the force, free Negroes, a few Indians, and Jean Lafitte's pirates. To the city's 600 freed black recruits, Jackson said, Through a mistaken policy, you have heretofore been deprived of participation in the glorious struggle for national rights in which your country is engaged. This no longer shall be the case. As for the pirates, he had convinced a judge to set them free from jail if they would enlist for the defense of the city. Lafitte considered himself a patriot, but not enough of one to pay taxes on his privateering. Lafitte and his men had been attacking British ships, something Congress was certainly grateful for, but they also expected him to pay 2% of the bounty in taxes to pay for those widowed and orphaned by the war. Lafitte and his men declined to do so, and the government had raided his land and arrested 80 of his men. The British had made Lafitte and his men an offer to come over to their side for $30,000 and tracts of land in Louisiana after it was captured from the Americans. Lafitte turned down the offer and instead presented the correspondence to the governor of Louisiana. The governor gave the correspondence to Jackson to demonstrate Lafitte's loyalty, and Jackson worked to have the pirates released. Once the defense had been planned and constructed, there was nothing left to do but wait. New Orleans went about its usual daily affairs as much as it could, knowing that a British invasion force was somewhere over the horizon. Most of the city came out to watch Jackson inspect the troops in front of the Cathedral of St. Louis. Once the inspection was concluded, he turned to the townspeople and praised them for putting away their differences of language and the prejudices of national pride. 800 reinforcements, primarily militia from Tennessee and Mississippi, arrived on December 20th, and another 400 men and 100 dragoons arrived later. Meanwhile, the British had landed out in the Gulf on Cat Island, over 60 miles away. After landing, the Redcoats loaded into boats and rowed through a frigid and icy gale for two days to reach the bayous outside of New Orleans. Admiral Cochrane went ashore to watch the landing and boasted to his crew that they would be eating Christmas dinner in New Orleans. The British captured some of the American sentries before they were able to escape and warn their commander 
Major Gabriel Villiers, who was spending the night on his farm not far away. When questioned by the British, the American prisoners lied about the size of Jackson's army, claiming that the city was defended by 18,000 men. That was almost four times the actual number. Meanwhile, Major Villiers sat on the front porch of his house, puffing a cigar, when he noticed redcoats swarming across his farm. He moved quickly, trying to escape, but was captured and brought inside the house for questioning. He managed to slip out of the grip of his captors and leapt out a window. He ran as fast as he could, desperate to warn Jackson that the British had landed. With British troops on his heels, Villiers fled through the swamp to a neighbor's house. He and the neighbor found a boat and rowed across the Mississippi to the stables on the other side. They quickly galloped to the American headquarters to warn Jackson. Jackson and his officers were dancing at a party when word of the British landing reached him. As one would expect, the room flew into a panic as everyone prepared to return home. Jackson spoke up in his loud, booming voice, calming the crowd and assuring them everything would be all right. He told the guests that only he and his staff needed to leave, and he would appreciate it if everyone else remained and continued to dance. Reassured by the confident commander, the people did return to dancing as Jackson and his officers left the ballroom. Coming from an unexpected direction, the British had the element of surprise, and had they marched straight to New Orleans, they might have easily taken the city. However, the inflated numbers given them by the captured American sentries, as well as the exhaustion of the troops who had rowed over 60 miles in the last two days, convinced the British commanders to wait. Besides, General Pakenham had not yet arrived, so the British rested on Villiers' plantation. No one paid attention to the ship that sailed up the Mississippi, assuming it was a merchant vessel. That is, until it began firing on them. The ship was, in fact, the small naval vessel USS Carolina, and Jackson had dispatched it to give the British hell. The shelling threw the redcoats into a panic as they fled for cover. Jackson's men had assembled on a neighboring plantation, and as soon as they heard the guns, began to march forward to attack the British. After several hours of confusing but intense fighting in the dark, the Americans fell back. When the sun came up a short time later, the British troops found dead bodies, both American and British, strewn everywhere. One Englishman and an American were lying dead beside each other, joined together by the bayonets each had thrust into the other's belly. Having halted the British advance, Jackson dug in for the defense of New Orleans. By Christmas Eve, the entire British army had made landfall. The next day, General Pakenham finally arrived. Instead of eating Christmas dinner in New Orleans, as Admiral Cochrane had boasted, they ate small amounts of rations while hiding from the cannon fire coming from American ships on the Mississippi. To add to their problems, the Tennessee sharpshooters crept through the brush and swamps and picked off the British sentries, causing the officers to curse the uncivilized warfare of the American savages. Pakenham decided that even though the entire force had made landfall, he would not attack until the heavy guns finally arrived and could silence the American ships. This gave Jackson and his makeshift army even more time to prepare their defenses. After some brief skirmishes with the Americans, the British began to set up batteries for their heavy guns. By New Year's Day, the guns were ready. With more guns and better positioned batteries, 
Pakenham believed that he could open up a hole in the American defenses through which his infantry could charge. So, on the morning of January 1, 1815, the British guns began shelling Jackson's headquarters. Jackson himself was asleep on a couch, in full uniform, and was awakened to the cannonballs slamming into the sides of the house and ripping through the walls. Fortunately, neither Jackson nor any of his men were harmed as they evacuated the building. The American artillery began returning fire, and despite the fact that they had fewer guns, they were more accurate. By noon, the tide had turned, and when the firing stopped, 44 Redcoats had been killed, while only 11 Americans had died. Because of this, the expected British assault never came. Admiral Cochrane attempted to dig a canal to bring an additional 1,400 troops to reinforce Pakenham. The muddy sides kept collapsing, however, and by January 6th, less than 500 of them had arrived. Realizing that no more reinforcements would be able to reach them, Pakenham decided he would have to finally begin his assault on New Orleans. Just before the battle began, a Miss Eliza Gould and her family were on the balcony overlooking Bourbon Street. The women were sobbing in fear of the British when they saw Jackson riding by on his horse. He stopped and looked up at them, upset at the women's tears. He insisted that they were in no danger and the British would be whipped back to their vessels. Mrs. Gould wrote that his confident manner and expressions dissipated for a time our distress. She then commented that Jackson's men were the most splendid horsemen I ever saw. Pakenham formed his army up under cover of darkness to finally assault the American positions when he realized that his men had forgotten to bring the ladders needed for crossing the enemy fortifications. A regiment was sent back for them, while the rest of the men simply waited, still formed up in the ranks. While they waited, the sun began to rise in the sky, giving the Americans a clear view of the redcoats. Jackson's men opened fire, felling hundreds of British troops. Despite not yet having the ladders, Pakenham had no choice but to order a charge. The British soldiers bravely assaulted the American earthworks, but without ladders to scale them, were forced to stand on each other's shoulders. This allowed the Americans to fire directly down on the tops of their heads. Pakenham rode into battle courageously leading a regiment himself. His horse was shot out from under him, and while he waited for a replacement, a canister of grape shot exploded, killing him and two of his most senior officers. Suddenly lacking high-ranking leadership, the British troops began to fall back under an American bombardment. With the British in full retreat, the guns ceased and American men climbed down from their fortifications to tend to the wounded British soldiers. Hundreds of redcoats surrendered. Meanwhile, Jackson walked from gun to gun congratulating the men as the band played Hell Columbia. The British sent a flag of truce and requested a two-day armistice to bury the dead. Jackson agreed. Over a thousand British soldiers lay dead in front of the American defenses, and their compatriots buried them in shallow graves. Jackson boasted that the Americans had only lost eight men dead and 14 wounded. Little did Pakenham and Jackson know, all of the soldiers had died in vain. Albert Gallatin, Henry Clay, and John Quincy Adams had negotiated the Treaty of Ghent two weeks earlier on Christmas Eve, a day before Pakenham had even landed in the bayou. Nevertheless, 
Jackson was the hero of the hour, and the battle made him a living legend throughout the United States and won him great fame internationally. The young American Republic had survived yet another threat from the British Empire. The great victory dashed all plots the Federalists in New York and New England had been cooking up to secede from the Union. The victory essentially destroyed the Federalist Party and unified the country in a way that it had not been since the end of the War of Independence. While that unity would not last, and the young nation's greatest test was yet to come, in 1815, America proclaimed the blessings of Providence on their new republic. There had been a genuine and realistic fear that the British would crush the country, possibly even reconquer it. The relief and celebration of America's victory is immortalized well in the poem Francis Scott Key scratched out on the back of a letter during the Battle of Baltimore. Oh say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave? Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. <laughs>